If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. Games don't do anything until you make choices. How does our expertise in games, how can we leverage it toward these concerning national trends that everyone is talking about? Multiplayer online video games can be about a whole lot more than simply playing and having a good time. Dr. Constance Steinkuhler and her students and fellow researchers are currently exploring all the ways that games can promote learning and improve well-being for individuals and for a society. Constance is both a full-time professor at UC Irvine, as well as the chair of UCI's Game Design and Interactive Media Program, and the co-director of UCI's Games Plus Learning Plus Society Center. Constance, before we get started talking about the Games Plus Learning Plus Society Center, I'd like to know a little bit more about you, because I just don't know that many people who earn three BAs simultaneously. How'd you come to make that professional choice in your own academic career? You know, I think it was more of not choosing than it was choosing, if you know what I mean. I had no intention of getting three degrees. I think in some ways, I really liked math and I liked creative writing and literature. And every time I would do a semester where I didn't have both, I felt, I just felt like something was missing. So I decided to do a double degree. And then it turned out that because I was raised very Catholic and I was very interested in women's issues and issues around religion. So I'd taken as my electives of classes I was just interested in, I took a bunch of religious studies classes. And so at one point, one of my professors sat me down and said, you know, you're like maybe two courses away from the degree. And I was like, that's not possible. And it turned out, yes, that was true. So I sort of got the third one. I wouldn't say by accident, but maybe a little bit. (laughs) It turned out, believe it or not, it turned out to be a fantastic experience. I feel like, you know, in my later work, I really got into analyzing social interaction, analyzing text, using discourse analysis methods. And I do think that a background in women's studies, a background in religious studies, looking at multiple like sort of different global comparative religions certainly taught me how to pay very close attention to text and the various kind of models, like does the author matter or not? You know, does context matter or not? Like, what do you need to interpret a text? But this sort of exegetical work proved to be really invaluable. So I'm very glad to have been able to train in that. I can see where all three disciplines would be hugely helpful to what you do today. Very much so. At the time, were you doing video gaming or how did you come to? (laughs) No, 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 no. That you have such a kind face. I'm just going to tell you all the truths, right? I did not. I mean, I... I was raised in a pretty strict household. My family is very German and a long line of farmers, landowners, very hardworking, diligent, earnest Catholic Germans. So I went to Catholic schools and I think I think I might study play because of that, because I think I really value maybe the more playful aspects of living and creating and doing as a result, but I really was not, games were not something allowed in the household, although my mom and I would sometimes go to a pizza parlor that had arcade games and I could rock some Miss Pac-Man, like no one's business, like high score to this day. I challenge any of your listeners, I will take them on (laughs) in my Miss Pac-Man. But that was it. I really didn't game at all. In fact, when I was 17 and went off to college, I really, 
I kind of became a kill your television person. So I really didn't have TV or go to much film, really, really any pop culture until graduate school. And I got involved in games because I was, I had gone to graduate school. I was really interested. It was right when the internet was sort of passing the 50% mark and it was sort of tipping over into being more normal and mainstream, right? So I was really interested in what happens when you have people working together. I am so fascinated with how people come to have a shared understanding, how they generate knowledge together, how they go from not knowing something. And through the sheer force of like working together, they can come up with a solution in science and other fields. So I was working my master's study and my work after that was really focused on looking at group conversations with sort of designed problems we gave them, like problems in science. So an example would be, should you teach creationism alongside evolution in the science classroom, right? So topics that I did not think would, I didn't think they were, this was like 2001, 2002. I thought that's not really a huge issue right now, but I wanted to see how people would come to a shared understanding or not. So I was doing that kind of work. It was the basis of my master's and whatnot. And I just, when I started, you know, I was doing quantitative analyses, looking for significant differences and improvement and argument and understanding. And we had all that. But I opened the transcripts of the interactions and I was just mortified. I realized that I had put people in this really awkward situation that as an educator, like, if you can't create a sense of belonging at the beginning, it's really hard to have learning happen, right? So little did I realize that my experimental design, which was intended to be rigorous to match strangers and chat rooms to talk about a controversial issue, led to these really awkward dynamics. And so participants would spend far more time than necessary, or I wouldn't, I shouldn't say that it was necessary, but they had to spend a lot of time even trying to build some sort of shared space of comfort to talk about the controversial issue. So even though it was certainly having gains, having people talk in certain design scenarios, what I realized was that, you know, I felt like I was, you know, studying the tabernacle choir, but only allowing them to hum, right? Like people are capable of so much more, but the environment I had inadvertently created was one where people really didn't function that well. They were, I mean, I could show gains, but this isn't really, people were not operating on all cylinders. So I had another advisor who, you know, I was studying Jim G, James Paul G. I was studying discourse analysis and social interaction and trying to understand, trying to develop methods for analyzing talk. And I told him about my dilemma and he said, well, that's because you need to get out of the lab. You need to study where people are now doing that kind of work. And at that time, he was just finishing his manuscript on what games can teach us about literacy and learning. So he said, you need to go study massively multiplayer online games. So I thought, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not a pop culture person. I don't do video games. But he's a very, very bright man. And he had always advised me really well toward what I wanted and needed. So I, without hesitation, said, okay, let me go do that. I downloaded my first game. I chose one that was the biggest on the market at the time. And it was a game called Lineage. It was a Korean-based game, multiplayer, player versus player dynamics, sieging castles. It's like a lot of military strategy. And I downloaded it and I took one look and I could not believe what I was seeing. I just... 
I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how complex, how thick the culture inside the game was. I couldn't believe how sophisticated the performances and play that was demanded by the game. I couldn't believe how hard it was that people did this for fun. And I just dropped everything and shifted everything to games because I thought this is the most I had so many misunderstandings and misconceptions about what games were about. And I just was completely fascinated. It was also really thrilling to watch. I mostly study teens and young adults, but I think all ages, it's really very thrilling and humbling to watch people do what they're passionate about, what they really enjoy. So it's hard to be cynical about people when you're studying them in the space where they feel most alive. And I've stuck with games ever since, I guess. Please tell me the story of creating the GLS Center. How'd that come about for you? Oh, you know, it's funny. That name, we just threw it up as a placeholder name. And it just stuck because we just were like, well, now we're known as that. So we're just going to be it. GLS was founded. It's one of the oldest. I think it's the oldest Games for Impact Center that had that's been out in academics or otherwise. Certainly, there were franchises for commercial franchises, but first academic lab. And really it grew out of, there were seven scholars at University of Wisconsin-Madison, seven scholars. I was one, but there were six other absolute luminaries in the field. James Paul G., right? Like the godfather of games for literacy and games for learning, period. You had Kurt Squire, who I'm also married to, full disclosure, so he's totally brilliant and I'm not biased whatsoever. Actually, <laughs> But, you know, Kurt was doing work with, you know, students of color in Boston and using Civ as a way to sort of explore alternative versions of history that are not this sort of great man theory, like asking, well, what would it mean? What Could Africa ever in- invade Europe? And you start to find out where resources are located has a huge impact on how history unfolds, right? So you had Jim G, you had Kurt Squire, you had the Halversons, Erica Halverson and Rich Halverson, Erica in the arts, Rich and Ed Policy. So we just had this this super team. I mean, it was so exciting to be in that group. I was sort of mostly just trying to hang on. But we, you know, we just decided in the very beginning, there was no conversation about games for learning. And so we just decided that we had some funding from Spencer Foundation we put together a conference and just called it Games, Learning, and Society so that people would not too narrowly think that we meant just educational games. We also wanted to think about games as a vehicle for enculturation. And we threw a conference for it, and it was fantastic. And we just decided that conference we did every year since for, I don't know, 12 years. We did a reunion last year for it. And then the center grew, I think, in our I guess before we moved institutions here to University of California, Irvine, that center was really big. (laughs) I think we had, it was stretched across academics and a non-for-profit. We had a team of 17 full-time professional game designers to make Games for Impact, which was unbelievable to work with professional designers. I learned so much. I mean, oh my gosh, the brilliant talent artists that we worked with. And then we also had about 30, 35 graduate students across the seven faculty involved. So it was a big center. We learned so much and we're still around. We're still working on the same problems. In fact, what's going on today over at Games Learning Society Center at UC Irvine? What are you right in the middle of? 
Oh, I'm glad you asked. You know, I think in the last like five years, given some of the national conversations, we've really been focused lately or preoccupied with thinking about how does our expertise in games, how can we leverage it toward these concerning national trends that everyone is talking about? So, you know, disinformation, misinformation and malinformation. How do you build resiliency among, you know, among citizens so that we're more resilient and discerning disinformation. So we're working on that issue. I just finished, we spent four years building out an esports program for youth here in Southern California, and it went international. It's called the North American Scholastic Esports Federation called NASEF. And Gerald Solomon is at the helm. He is an incredible, incredible leader. And that that scholastic esports program, it's an after school club that connects esports back to academic work, not to colonize esports, but to actually show kids that school is directly relevant to what you are passionate about. That learning about data and proportions and percentages and math and literacy and communication is all absolutely central to success in esports. So it was sort of like creating kind of a Trojan horse model. We also did a lot of work with kids around helping them strengthen their capacity for self-regulation of emotions because in competitive esports where there's a lot at stake, there's a phenomenon called tilt. And tilt is a term actually from poker. Although I think it might also have a background from like pinball games. You know, you used to when you get mad and push it, it would tilt the machine like that. So tilt is a concept in game communities where when you're on a team and you're competing and you start to get, you know, you start to get emotional, frustrated, angry, or upset, maybe sad, and you start to make less, like your decision making starts to erode. You start to make worse and worse decisions. So in this esports program. We found really through incredible coaches, we just simply trained near peer coaches to be good role models. And they did all this fantastic work actually helping kids in that context understand self-regulation, understand how to behave online, understanding that like the words that you use and forms of humor are not funny at all. They actually are damaging to people and they're damaging to you because not only will people not want to compete with you or against you, they also, you literally erode the team. You can see it in the data, right? Someone tilts and it goes down. And if you're lucky, you can get it to recover, but very few can. So we've been working on that. And then from there lately, I've been, I just finished a study about toxicity and hate speech and harassment in online game spaces. So for the first time, really looking at some of the some of the darker sides, some of the harder sides with what kids are experiencing in these spaces. And that has been, I think, really difficult because, as I said before, I've always spent my career studying kids. I mean, it's just studying them do what they love. And it's amazing what you see. It's amazing what you see. So studying some of the harder sides of like some of the language that's used, some of the ways in which it's, you know, it feels like it may be becoming more normalized to behave in ways that we would, until this last five years, consider uncivilized. We've been looking at that and sort of trying to understand what are the causes, the consequences, and what are the ways that we might be able to tamp down some of this sort of behavior. So it sounds dark, but I think we're really trying to think about 
you know, now that 15 years have passed since GLS was founded, actually more than that, I guess we were founded in 2005 now. Yeah, about 18 years, right? I think right now we're trying to like be nimble enough to go after and ask the question of how are these bigger national issues, like how do they play out in the spaces where we have expertise and might be able to make some kind of contribution no matter how small. If you had to answer that question, what are the ways that we tamp down some of this negative behavior, the hate speech, sexism, racism, maybe even ageism? What are some? Oh, of- I'm so glad that, you know, I always feel like, like it's such a bucket of cold water to talk about, especially when we're talking about kids. But it's really concerning when you start to see what is has become sort of normative forms of interaction in online game spaces. And there's a lot of headlines around like, hate-based hate speech, hate-based harassment. And as far as like addressing it, one thing I would say, a couple points, just in thinking through it. So first, we really take a model where there's really three roles. There's the victim, the perpetrator, and the bystanders, right? And so I like to think of it in all three roles because it helps us see a bit more how to address the problem. And it also acknowledges that Being exposed to hate speech and harassment online, even when you're not the target, is harmful to people. And we're, I think we have a fairly decent body of research now documenting some of the impacts, and the impacts are pretty dire. What we see is that, you know, hate speech, so targeted behavior against people for ethnicity, for their ability status, their gender identity, their body type, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you go after an individual who is already in a minority group of that fashion, it does cause not just detachment and sort of disengagement with the game. That's a self-protective strategy, although it does leave the dynamic in place. But it also causes among women rumination among regardless of gender. It causes feelings of isolation, social isolation. It causes frustration, insecurity, which leads also to depression and increases even suicidal thoughts. So this idea we have that like, oh, it's just a joke. Oh, it's it's not really harmful. is just a convenient thing that I think players tell themselves because it allows the behavior to continue. But, you know, companies, there's a variety of tools that we have. And I should say, you know, game companies in some ways have more ways of dealing with moderating behavior and reporting behavior that empowers players to do those kinds of actions to protect themselves, to speak out and report, than many other social platforms. So, you know, if you looked at like Twitter and some of the other social platforms, Instagram, et cetera, you see grown adults saying and doing things that grown adults should not be saying or doing under in any public space ever. <laughs> you know, and they will savage each other in ways as though being witty is going to replace your lack of character. And I'm not trying to say that in some sort of holier than thou person, because I know exactly what it's like to say something and turn around and regret it, right? In which, oh my God, that was not my best self. But I feel like across all the social platforms, we are seeing a rise of incivility in this kind of hate-based harassment. Games do offer solutions in some ways better than many social platforms. I will say now, too, you know, so that's on the tool side and on the industry side. There's recently efforts to use AI-driven ways to moderate chat channels so that you're not exposed. And that does some work, right? It's always an arms race because those who want to violate other people (laughs) verbally 
will find ways to do it, no matter what kind of chat system you put in. So I think a better solution is really cultural norms. And I don't mean sort of, yes, I do mean across the board, y'all all be nice to each other. Like, let's go back to like radical hospitality. Let's go back to that. Radical inclusion. It's okay to disagree, right? Respect is that we're all more than our political opinion. But that said, we also know some things about some of the policy work that's coming out. Because one of the things I think is really missing is that parents and players, you know, we have a game rating system and it actually works very well. It's clear. It's easy to understand when you survey consumers. They're like, no, it's fine. It's good. It works the same way that the film one does. A little bit different categories, but but they do not capture online games where the game is also other people are the content, right? Other people, you are playing other people either competitively or collaboratively. So other players are part of the content you're consuming. So let's say for me, when my kid was, let's say, in sixth grade and wants to play Fortnite, you know, I can go and I can read reviews and I can see its rating for its content. But what I can't see is what is the rating of your community in terms of like, is my kid going to be exposed to racist speech? Is my kid going to be exposed to, you know, denigrating comments about different gender identities? So the consumers can't make any kind of choice because they have no way of knowing, right? So I think that, that those kinds of policies that can enable more consumer choice, I think will actually drive a tamping down and probably accelerate companies dealing with these issues because from what we're seeing in our quantitative data, you know, there's like a 50, I think it's like over 50%, I think it's like 54% or something different consumer spend on games that are renowned for being toxic versus those that are not renowned for being toxic, which is to say that there is a major loss of revenue for game companies who do not tamp down or address the toxicity of their community because players don't spend nearly as much they'll leave, right? So all to say, we're learning a lot. I think we still have some more ways to go, but I think we're learning a lot about ways that we should address this. And I would also say I'm pretty optimistic that games have always been kind of a, you know, a canary in the coal mine technology. So I feel like games are always in advance of so many other platforms because they're so complex. And the designers in the space are just pushing. They're just really innovative. But because of that, you see some of the problems games encounter become the problems that other kinds of medium platforms encounter later. So my hope is that the same might be true of solutions, that, you know, game-based solutions to some of these issues might proliferate across other social platforms as well. You touched on the myths about gaming. The kids are studying or they're playing and they're wasting their time. What's the actual truth that you've seen with your research? I mean, it's so interesting, these stereotypes. You know, I think that often games are positioned as orthogonal to learning. Games are positioned as orthogonal to self-regulation, as orthogonal to literacy and problem solving. And I think it's actually quite the opposite. Games are as a medium I mean, just compare them to other major media like television. Games don't do anything until you make choices. So games demand that you make choices. You do things. They're very extracting. When my children were young, I had restrictions on how much 
you know, streamed media they could have. Like we watched, you know, how long are you spending on YouTube? But gameplay was something different. Gameplay demands a kind of interactivity. You know, I there's a lot of concerns about games related to, and some of them are perfectly well-founded. I will say that not all games should be played by all players. Not all games are appropriate to different age groups. And, you know, games are just like, I mean, they're protected by the First Amendment because they contain ideas. And it's one of the harder places for teachers and parents to engage is that, you know, games are so long and complicated. Sometimes it feels overwhelming. Like, how are you, you know, you you want to parent to know what kind of messages your kid is absorbing, right? Your students are absorbing. But with games, unlike a film, it's hard to get a quick review. It's hard to know, you know, they're so idiosyncratic what a player might touch in a game. Like, they all traverse different pathways through. They could be seeing very different content. But um, so games are difficult to parent that way. But the truth is that, you know, games are this incredibly demanding, lively medium. And so there's now... When I first started, there were not a lot of scholars at all studying games, which is part of what made it exciting. It felt kind of blue ocean, like we should study everything, right? And now 20 years later, there's 20 years, two decades of research showing, you know, what games for which groups of young people and students in what context are actually incredibly effective. You know, there's some across the board stats, for example, the look at games and simulations that was done by SRI. Oh, it's one of the early studies that just compared like across multiple classrooms in science, the use of games and simulations versus the use of textbooks. And the gain was like 23% gain. So if you think about that in terms of that's more than two grades, right? That's a huge gain. So, and there have been subsequent reviews since then, but it was one of the most surprising ones that actually was able to compare traditional forms to games. And so that's always interesting. I should also say that in my own experience, and I haven't seen anyone really study this, and I think if there's anyone out there interested in research, this is the study to do. I would love to see it. But in my experience in so many game-based interventions that we've done, and that my colleagues have done, a lot of what I see is that it's oftentimes that the kids that are doing well in school do just as well as school, right? Like they do just as well. It's usually that bottom third of students that what you see is that their performance actually goes up to meet where the non-struggling students are. So my sense is that probably my hunch would be that it's due to just like having a different way to experience the content and a different medium, which has a different logic to it. For students, for him, traditional formats don't really work well, where reading a textbook doesn't resonate. You know, games can kind of help that group of students actually perform as well as the other students who do benefit from traditional media. You, in fact, did, I think, a learning lab and found some interesting things out about literacy through gaming. Yes. Yes, we really did. And that was very surprising. This was quite a while back. And I had a an incredible star student named Elizabeth King, who's now faculty at University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. And she, I could never have run this program without her. Because one thing you find out is that, oh, being a researcher does not make you a good program manager in that way. Like <laughs> running programs for kids is really hard. You need professional skills, you know. But we ran this, you know, we decided that we had done these studies looking at 
what are the normative practices and literacy around games? And so we could say things with an empirical, like knowing exactly how certain we are, you know, an interval confidence of an interval confidence. You know, we started to see that game text was, you know, high level reading text for students, that it was 12th grade reading on average, when most science sections of, say, the New York Times would be more like eighth grade, right? We started seeing that the majority of the text they consume is empirical work, expository text, very technical text that for most students is very difficult in the classroom. It's more challenging for many students. And we started seeing like there was a 4% academic academic wordless vocabulary across the text that we analyzed. So we started seeing this stuff and was like, this is amazing. You know, like this looks, as a literacy person, this looks like a perfect intervention for literacy. And just about that time, I had my first child who was a boy. And, you know, it's funny, I had taught courses around gender and technology, but it had always been around women and technology. I never really, I just, I guess I never really paid attention to the other side of the coin, what's going on for boys in school. So I started, you know, once I had a boy, I started just trying to read like what's going on with boys these days and was, you know, discovered that there's a lot not going well for boys in school. You know, among the not going well is the fact that across the board for decades, boys have read two grades below what we consider level. I mean, at some point, either the way we're leveling reading is simply wrong when it leaves out half of the population or something is really wrong with how we're doing instruction so that like one entire gender is left behind. Right. And I think it's a bit of both and a bit of normative development for different gendered bodies. But seeing that, I just was I remember being so struck by having just published papers about how commercial games could foster literacy and could foster all this important form of critical literacy. And just looking at this and thinking, my gosh, if I'm going to make this argument, then why is it paying off for boys in school? Because whether we admit this or not, the games that I study, online, teen-based competition or collaborative games, are typically majority male audience for it. Girls play games, make no mistake, girls play games, but girls and boys typically like different genres, trend toward different genres. The genres I most study, which are online and interactive socially, are mostly male dominated. I think I think World of Warcraft had the biggest number of women and it was 18%. So imagine that I'm studying World of Warcraft, majority of male audience, documenting all the forms of literacy that go into it, making this argument in education that this is a really, why are we firewalling out games when it actually recruits all this significant traditional print literacy, only to see that boys today in schools are gaming away in their private time, but it's obviously not paying off, right? So we actually did that We put together that learning lab. We did a casual games-based learning lab. It was really just like an after-school club. We offered it on campus. And we started to do that kind of work because I realized we have got to try to understand if if students are engaging in this kind of high-level work outside of school, why is it not paying off in school? Now, I'm going to add a little asterisk, though, like asterisk. And that's that the idea that kids passion spaces and lives are supposed to pay off for school instead of school paying off for their lives is completely backwards. And I don't want to make that normal. 
because that's not right, right? Or at least in my view, I should say, I don't espouse a model where somehow performance on school metrics is the end-all be-all and everything you do outside of school has got to somehow ooh, get a higher test score. I hate that model. I think it's destroying us, our families. It's destroying kids. And I mean that. But I also think it's, I guess, I think it's reckless to do work in education, documenting all this literacy stuff and not actually exploring, well, then why isn't it making a difference? So we did. We spent two or three years really diving into it. And we learned a lot about the disconnect between school and out-of-school reading, school and out-of-school problem-solving, critical thinking, at least for young men, teens, middle and high school teen boys. We learned a lot about how many of them felt about school that was really heartbreaking, to be honest with you. I mean, apparently I really like school because I won't leave it. And even now I study education. So obviously I'm a big believer, but it was really revealing. And where I think we really, for myself, I feel like one of the big takeaways was that underlying some of these performance differences was really this underlying gnarly variable of interest or engagement. I'm going to call it interest, though I'm not always sure that's the right word. But it turns out that if you look at reading performance in a context where it's assigned versus the context where it's goal-driven, they choose because they want to read something to solve a problem, you see really different performances. And it's not that the text of choice is easier text. We even check to see, is it because they know more about the topic? Because that can happen, right? That didn't explain it either. What explained it was that when we opened up the reading records, we followed a QRI format. When you open up the reading records, you see they have just as many challenges, just as many problems in the text. It's not easier on any level. The one difference is that they sit there and fix their comprehension problem right there themselves through using context, using like the context in the text, right? They do all of this. All of a sudden they engage all these systems that you want them to do on your school assigned text, but they're not doing it, but they're doing it in their private text because they care, because they're engaged, because they're interested, because it's goal-driven. Even just having a, like, knowing why you're reading it, even if you're reading it because it enhances your life. But I think we really saw that it was this sort of persistence in the face of challenge that was the big difference, right? So in the game space, there's nothing magical when it comes to games and reading in relation to games. There's some magical things about games as an intervention, but I would argue that any space where kids are already passionate, already have an interest in, that reading in that context and domain is so much more potent because they end up doing all the kind of work that a good reader does when they encounter challenges in text, which is that you recruit all these strategies to understand it, right? But if you don't care about understanding it or you don't understand why you need to understand it, then suddenly all of that goes offline. So it raises a whole bevy of other issues. It raises, you know, despite all of our good efforts, how some of our assessments maybe conflate still maybe conflate culture with ability in some ways, right? We tend to like what we've had exposure to. So 
it starts to get oh, concerning when you see texts that, you know, I had kids that were reading eight grades above grade level, but in school were rating woefully below their grade level, you know, and you have to ask what kind of test is it when, you know, when you change the text, but not the text difficulty or sophistication, what kind of test is it when in this case, they're not doing well. And in the second case, they're doing very well. Raises a lot of problems, I think, but those are bigger issues that I'm not going to solve in a single heartbeat. But that was kind of the upshot. What it meant to their world, the common denominator here for the kids. Yeah. Suppose that we're sitting in your classroom right now and you're going to teach your students to design a game that's going to include everybody. We want everyone playing. We want everyone to feel comfortable but we also want them to have a good time as they're learning. What are a couple of the first things you're going to teach them? Oh my gosh. That is a really difficult question. I should be able to like call in an expert line. Husband, get over here and tell me. You know, <laughs> I would first say that it's very hard to make any product that's for all people, right? So one thing to remember is that, you know, games work really well, but they work in particular contexts with a particular target audience group, right? So a game that's very useful for high schoolers is not all useful for middle schooler or for elementary school. So thinking about what kind of, how to sort of dial in for your audience would be first. You'd almost need to define that audience. And then second, of course, you need to define what content you want to teach. I will say this, games are not always, no, people don't expect me to say this, games are not always what you want to use, right? There are forms you know, when what you want students to know and understand, when they need to go through a linear path where choice is not helpful, when you need to teach something that is linear in that way, games are the most inefficient way to do it. And it also creates really bad games because in games, the illusion of choice, the illusion of control, and the illusion of winnability are very important. So game designers spend a lot of time on that. I would say, however, that topics that are really ripe for games tend to be systems, systems that are hard and complicated and actually best served by being able to enter into the system. Like, for example, cellular interactions or understanding the body's immune system by playing from the position of a virus that's trying to combat and fight the immune system because there is no entity you know better than your opponent. You have to understand like the opponent that you're trying to be. I think that games like action role-playing games, games like uh, we've seen Morrowind used for literacy, we've seen World of Warcraft, and thinking about um, Peggy Sheehy's World of Warcraft being used in disability classrooms to engage them in literacy and problem-solving that way. There have been so many incredible examples of really master teachers choosing whether commercial or impact games and putting them thoughtfully in their classroom. And part of what you discover when you start to look across those instances of really big impacts is that teachers are always designing not just the game, but they're designing an activity around it. So a common thing is like, you know, setting certain expectations or goals, right? So that becomes sort of setting up like doing some preliminary setup for what's driving the gameplay, doing after action reports for people where kids have to verbalize what happened in the game and talk about it with others so that they're finding common patterns. Those are really big impact sort of 
easy, cheap ways to get big impact out of any kind of treatment, but particularly games that tend to be first person experiences. So we need a moment to step back and be like, okay, let's talk, walk through what just happened. Why did it happen? What does it mean? How did it compare to your neighbors? Those things do a lot to have big gains and outcomes for students. And then there's some titles I've always wanted to just make, (laughs) you know, titles that I really want to see. I'm seeing more of them, but I would really like to see some titles that actually engender self-regulation of attention, self-regulation of emotions, teaching the big magical pause. I can point to some programs like there's Jennifer Scheme from UC Berkeley is working on a game called Untilted, which is just the first of its kind I've really seen for a long time that's putting kids in hot situations and the gameplay you are rewarded for pausing before you make a rash decision. So it's sort of normalizing this idea of pausing before you just smash buttons or lash out, which is really interesting. And what I love is that the kids are totally into it. But to be honest with you, I would say that almost any game almost any game with the right teacher could easily be made a game for impact. But then I also should admit that I have a bias where I think that kids learn from other people. We learn as humans from other people and technology supports that or it gets in our way. And when it gets in our way, we need to get rid of it, right? But to me, the actual real enculturation learning comes from other people. So the game, you know, is just a context for that interaction to happen. I love the concept of Untilted. Let's do a shameless plug. How do people find out more about the eSports program or anything more about the GLS Center? Oh, thank you. Well, we you can Google search GLS and UCI and you will find us there, though I think our website, we're in the middle of repurposing and posting it back up. But we have a full lab here with about 12 doctoral students and a bevy of interns. We have game design major here. So we have a bevy of interns that work with us to develop the games. So we are here at UCI. And then as far as the other question was NASEF and NASEF, you can find it's N-A-S-E-F and you will find it out. It is big. I mean, I think now it's in basically every state in the United States, Canada, Mexico, and abroad in both Asia and Europe. And I have to say, they may actually be going under their world. There's a worldwide scholastic esports, but I think I might have that particular acronym wrong. So forgive me on that one. But I will say that that program has really developed and become more and more differentiated as it moves across different environments, different kids, different needs, different cultures. So now they are up and running leagues with coaches and materials. And we even had like a four-year English language arts curriculum based on NASEF that was approved A to G here in California. But they are serious about their enrichment. And that can be found anywhere online. And I would love, I really encourage people to go see it because, you know, I didn't know a lot about esports. I knew about it, but wasn't really paying attention until I arrived here on campus. And our university, now there are hundreds of universities like this. But in 2017, when I landed here, there was maybe 40 or 50, I think. And our university was one and probably one of the biggest ones to have a collegiate esports team. So this means that students are competing at the collegiate level 
They have athletic scholarships for it. They are competing in video game play as a form of sport. There are league brackets. There are formal competitions among schools. Our center here is unbelievable. We have an esports arena right on campus. And the gentleman who directs it, his name is Mark Deppy, and he is just he is just incredible. He has set up a program. The community is so supportive, inclusive. They have a code of conduct. Their team is a championship team. But what's even more exciting is that he really does professionalize them. So they have tutors. They have you know, physical therapy. They have workouts. They have to do all of the work other athletes do, including being a good citizen, going out and serving the community. So it's just a top-notch program. And for those who haven't looked at it, what's going on in esports on college campuses is unbelievable. I mean, now I think the last number I saw, which was maybe two years ago, was 287 colleges, including Ivy League down to liberal arts, have actual collegiate esports teams. So while we weren't looking, the whole world changed. (laughs) I love the element of sportsmanship. Final question for my podcast, the signature question. If people can only get one thing from you about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you like them to take away from the work you're doing? Oh, my gosh. Thank you for asking that. You know, I think the one thing I would say is that I think in America, especially now, we are under so much pressure to perform, so much pressure to be always productive. Everything we do always ends up justified by how it will serve us later, how it will help us increase 3%, 3% faster reading and 2% test score increase, you know. And I think through all the work I've done, the one thing I can say with certainty is that actually cultivating things for the joy of cultivating them, that playfulness is actually so incredibly good, not just for your cognitive systems and your affective systems, but it's good for you socially. It's good for you emotionally. I think it's actually just good for your soul. And it's so amazing how easy it is for us to be embarrassed for the time we spend filling our artistic well, you know, doing that kind of creative work, the things that we most enjoy, we oftentimes sort of, especially, I find a lot of my own undergraduates do this. They kind of denigrate it and dismiss it. Like that's barren play. And I'm embarrassing when knows that I don't do anything, but just work. Right. (laughs) Well, it turns out that that those activities also, they feed the creativity of so much other problem solving. One of the examples I'll use is like in the games industry. Yes, you can get a degree in game design. Absolutely. And there's a ton of great programs out there, including ours. But it's also true that when you go into games, one of the first things people will look for when you go into game design is they really want to see that you have a wide variety of interests and backgrounds. So liberal arts, it's funny to say it's such a traditional form, but because like just having exposure to a variety of of activities, of passions, of art, of culture, those are where all of your ideas come from. In fact, a lot of solutions for problems come from adjacency fields. So all of that work that you think might be distraction, you know, might be the distractions. It's sort of the old saying, it might be that the distractions while one thinks of while trying to pray are the prayer itself, right? That that actually is not just mere barren play. It's actually perhaps the very heart of things. So I guess keeping a space for that 
and maybe giving ourselves and other people permission to you know, to have those passion areas and to not denigrate them the way that we do with our little nasty puritanical streak in America where everything needs to be, you know, justified by its functionality. I would say that's the one takeaway. I feel like I spent my whole career just saying, wait, 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 wait. This isn't barren play. If you look at its sophistication, look at everything that's happening here. And I think that you could do the similar work with other serious, rich content areas. Constance, thank you for your time today. Of course. I'm so glad to be here. And thank you for such a lively conversation. You and I have been listening to Dr. Constance Steinkuhler, co-director of the Games Plus Learning Plus Society Center at UC Irvine. Constance is also the chair of UCI's Game Design and Interactive Media Program and chair of UCI's annual GLS conference. Find out more about the GLS Center and UCI's full lab on game design and UCI's game design program at uci.edu when you look under Department of Informatics. Also, Constance mentioned the nonprofit NASF, which is the founding organization of Scholastic Esports. For more information on the opportunities which NASF provides for students to build their skills through esports, go to nasef.org. That's N-A-S-E-F. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. Be sure you subscribe. It's free by clicking the link on our website. Our music is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.